Welcome to another week of COVID-19 law briefings. Today we'll be diving deeper into the hot question of federal, state, and local authority to limit your movement. Uh, public health law briefings, uh, COVID law briefings are brought to you by the Public Health Law Watch, supported by This Week in Health Law, the George Consortium of Health Law Professors, and the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple Law School. I'm Scott Burris, director of the center, and I'm here today with Ross Silverman, professor of health policy and management at the Indiana University Fairbanks School of Public Health. Ross and I will get started today swapping moderator role. Um, I'll ask him about the hot questions in stay-at-home orders, and then he's going to ask me about sanitary cordons and restrictions on interstate travel, and we'll finish up with some discussion of the emerging uh, standard for reviewing such uh, challenges, such, such orders. So, Ross, uh, within states, we have started to see some challenges of one sort or another to gubernatorial emergency powers. Um, can legislate override governors? What's going on here? Well, yeah, we've uh, over the last really week and a half, we've started to see some challenges uh, to emergency power use. Um, I know you'll talk a little bit later about some of the lawsuits that are out there, uh, but uh, I want to give you just a little bit of background on kind of the battlefield uh, at the moment. Um, so Dave Studdard and Mark Hall had a really nice piece this, uh, this past week in the New England Journal. Um, and as they described the the outbreak, I mean, this is not kind of your typical one location, short duration type of a situation. We're dealing with a, an extended rolling crisis across all 50 states with peaks in slightly less dangerous valleys. It, you know, it's neither geographically or temporally limited. And so because it's not just a small handful of exposures like the Ebola outbreak, things like quarantine and isolation haven't been the entirety of the responses. It's not the. It's only been a small part of the response. What we've relied much more heavily on uh, are executive powers and executive orders that are framing out systems to keep most people staying at home, imposing restrictions on large gatherings, while also designating a smaller set of jobs and activities as being "quote unquote" essential. Um, I really like how Studdard and Hall phrased it in their piece. You know, current stay-at-home orders are less intrusive than quarantine and isolation in some respects. They're lightly enforced and essential outings are permitted, and they're more intrusive in others because most people subjected to them are neither infected nor exposed. These stay-at-home executive business orders, well, Scott, you and I are both, you know, Jazz Fest fans. We would be getting prepped normally under under normal circumstances, getting prepared to be going down there for Jazz Fest right now. Well, these stay-at-home orders are really kind of like a gumbo themselves. Uh, They all start with the holy trinity in the room. In this case, I'd call that the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency list of essential critical infrastructure workers. These lay out who are really needed to make sure that the sick get cared for, core government functions keep going, power and clean water stay on, financial markets stay open, security and safety, etc. Just about everybody says liquor stores need to stay open as far as state orders are concerned. And that's not just the power of the alcohol and beverage lobby. That's because so many folks have alcohol use disorder uh, need to avoid withdrawal symptoms. That's actually harm reduction for a large vulnerable population. Uh, there are some places that have been fighting over things like CBD stores, um, but well, you know, we can hold that for another time. But after that, those core central essential services, everybody's got their own sets of ingredients that they throw into the mix based on local tastes, family traditions, politics. Who, who decides? I think that's that's the, the legal fight. They're all different, but is this just the governor's call or is there somebody looking over the governor's shoulder? Sure. Well, there's, is, is what, what essentially happens 
means is that the legislatures are laying out a framework um, that'll give the governor the right to uh, to to put out these executive orders, and they kind of give very broad uh, sets of powers, and occasionally will put a do not go into this area type uh, structure in place. So it's really the power comes from the legislature, and they delegate that as as with all public health power, they delegate that to the executive to really run with most of the action and the authority during the course uh, of the actual emergency. And so what we have seen in a couple of places is uh, some dis- some debates uh, on on both sides of the um, uh, where uh, the executive may have put uh, an order in place and there are concerns about it may not be broad enough. Um, so in Kansas, for example, the legislature uh, gave the governor the authority. The governor first came out and said that uh, churches and church attendance was an essential service. Then she came back and actually amended that and kind of pulled that back and said, we don't want live gatherings. Well, the legislature didn't like that. And so they uh, passed an order uh, through their legislative leadership, essentially trying to revoke that uh, that executive order saying live in-person gatherings could not occur at churches. Was that Um, a resolution or a statute? What was that? Well, I mean, it was uh, the the exact term of what they passed was not legislation. Um, It was some form of a of a resolution, I believe. And uh, what uh, the governor ended up doing was over the weekend challenging that authority because under the executive powers law, uh, only uh, passage of uh, legislative action by the entire state legislature could override her uh, authority. So but there we've you seen speak some of, of that. Kansas, I'm just wondering, you know, we've just heard this morning that the Virginia bishop who was in the lead denouncing the closing of churches in that state had actually unfortunately died of COVID-19. Yeah. But it does raise the question, as Kansas does, are there special rules for religious institutions? Um, do they get a pass in some way or, or lighter treatment under law? Well, they... Um... That, that's it's it's hard to give a yes or no answer to that. I mean, there are obviously significant constitutional questions that arise um, in emergencies. What has generally been held to be the belief is that uh, rules uh, that that the state police powers are going to override that the the right to uh, practice uh, entirely as one might wish in these type of circumstances if that would cause, if those practices would cause a potential health harm to others. So they, what we've seen is a, a couple of different actions play out in a couple of different states. Um, you may remember the Tampa Bay priest who uh, was arrested uh, for violating the local health order. Um, what had happened, that was before the state had put in place an actual executive order saying that uh, live in church, uh, church services were uh, essential. Um, so you had this uh, challenge between what's going on at the local level versus what's going on at the state level. That minister actually had indicated he was going to hold uh, Palm Sunday and Easter services, but then his insurance company dropped him. So that's actually an interesting little wrinkle that we have in this system. But now, bottom line, backstop. have we got a legal rule here? I mean, can court can churches win cases if they if they um, are told that they're not essential, or so far are they having to to, to toe the line? 
line? It's 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 a little bit of a mixed bag. They have to toe the line. What we've seen so far is that they've had to toe the line to the extent that other types of services that have been allowed to stay open have had to toe the line. So in states that have uh, drive-through deliveries available, drive-through restaurants and things along those lines, you could hold drive-through services in most of those places. And Louisville, there was a case where they uh, uh, where the mayor wanted to stop all uh, activity at churches and a federal judge, uh, district court judge stepped in. Um, on the flip side, um, in California, a federal judge threw out in San Diego uh, a case, a similar kind of an argument uh, in uh, California where um, they wanted to hold live services and those would have been found to be in violation of the 10-person meeting rule. Um, the other place where there's some uh, action that I think could be coming down the pike has to do with the 21 states that have their own state RIFRA laws. Um, religious Freedom Restoration Act. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so and what that's, do those do? Uh, those essentially change the uh, status uh, and protected status of religion uh, from almost any type of interference. And have and, we got case under those yet, or do you anticipate that might start to happen? Well, we haven't seen any yet. I, I really did think that what we were going to see was over, I mean, I think Easter Sunday is, I mean, it's like Super Bowl Sunday. You know, that's really kind of the place where you were going to see most of the action. Kansas, if you go, the attorney general in that state put out an order essentially saying to the state you couldn't enforce any rules against it. And they lay out the RIFRA related arguments there. I think very, in, a, in, in language that to me says, you, you know, that you're supposed to use the least restrictive approach possible to deal with the with any kind of issue. So, to me, so that seems like it could be a moving goalpost. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll have to see what that goes. Well, now it's your turn to question me. Well, sure. So now I I'd mean, be guess. I'd be happy to. Uh, as far as these, you know, uh, we, we've seen a couple of different things going on. There's been news that states are now starting to hammer out compacts to implement this gradually opening up things back up again. Can you talk a little bit about interstate travel restrictions? Well, and I, you know, actually, I think the same thing applies. The same question has arisen with uh, President Trump and his spat, his Twitter spat with the uh, governors yesterday about who has the authority to open us up at all. Um, at the beginning of the epidemic in the U.S., when the federal government was repatriating people from overseas, CDC did exercise uh, its authority under statutes and regulations to stop movement, to quarantine people based on the reasonable suspicion that they had been exposed on a cruise ship or in Wuhan or something. More recently, a number of states have started to assert control over people traveling from other states, stopping cars at the border, ordering, the, the, giving people an order that they quarantine, maybe all travelers or just travelers from hotspot states, or anyway, telling them they'd have to quarantine. Now, a quarantine order, strictly speaking, isn't a travel ban. It isn't a cordon sanitaire. It happens to happen at a border, but it's just applying traditional health power to people who have a, uh, for, for, a, for, a, for the reason stated. Now, that means these policies, which are not based on state citizenship, are sort of skirting a direct conflict with the Commerce Clause and the Privileges and Immunities Clause, the stuff that um, we talked about last week um, in the briefing. Um, they could, however, uh, be challenged potentially for lack of individualized suspicion and, and generally due process overall. But as far as I can tell, they haven't been. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that it doesn't 
doesn't matter anyway because everyone is locked down. So it's not as if you're taking people traveling interstate and saying you, unlike everybody else in the state, has got to go inside for 14 days. We're all inside right now. Well, so and that's where, you know, it seems like, you know, as far as I mean, the president doesn't have and the and the federal government don't have strict, you know, authorities like the public health and the police powers uh, for this from the states. But they do have this kind of soapbox. And there is this big push now to get the economy reopened. Yeah, um, no, I said exactly right. I think we're going to see a change here because as pressure builds to get back to normal, the model is changing from locking everybody down to some sort of generalized social distancing with stepped up testing, contact tracing and quarantine of people where there's reasonable evidence exposure. Now, again, it's a big if here because it's not clear at all that we have either the testing capacity or the administrative capacity and health departments to actually do something like this. Um, you know, we're no Korea, we're no Taiwan, we're just, uh, you know, the United States. Um, presumably, as this happens, different states and cities with different levels of COVID will open at differing rates, and they may want to limit people coming in from places with higher risks. So a traveler coming into a place that is not generally locked down may have more reason and a better case to challenge a blanket rule. If the state can't show that that person was exposed, um, what's the basis for locking them up, as you noted the, in the in the Studdard and Hall argument. The emergence of interstate compacts among northeast, northeastern and west coast states may be you know, a welcome or at least sensible indication that, that planning may be getting ahead of reaction uh, at last and that governors may work out some sort of reasonable multi-state system of COVID control. But if we start seeing frank discrimination based on general um, characteristics of state travel, then you get into that realm where um, the due process clause, the privileges immunities clause, um, and even the commerce clause may come under control, uh, may come into play. And if the president is determined to open up the country, um, who knows, you could see um, the Justice Department potentially stepping in to challenge certain kinds of interference with travel um, as potentially a violation of federal, you know, essentially the dormant commerce, commerce clause. Toward that end, uh, you know, I, I, I think, I mean, you know, there is going to be this this ongoing pressure to, you know, and, and, and perhaps the, you know, the power of the purse can be used in certain circumstances by the, you know, the, the federal government to kind of try to incentivize people taking a little more risk or states willing to take more risk. They may get more of the pandemic funding, things along those lines. But, you know, we are still starting to see now challenges to a number of these different measures, uh, you know, even at the state level. I know you've looked into some some of these early signs, and what are you seeing as far as where the legal fights are, are starting to play out? Well, I think Lindsay Wiley and Steve Vladek gave us a must-read post on the Harvard Law blog last week, and that's posted on Public Health Law Watch for people who want to read it. They looked at this surrogate case about abortion, the Abbott case, which upheld the ban on abortions, and the brutal Snunu case in New Hampshire, which is a challenge on the state ban on gatherings. Uh, uh, Wiley and Flatt pointed out that, that the courts, these courts anyway, and, and maybe this is a trend, now seem to be reading uh, the, our seminal Jacobson against Massachusetts uh, vaccination case to say that constitutional rights and judicial review are, are suspended in an emergency. And so all the government has to do to defend an emergency measure is, is pass a very minimal, good faith, reasonable basis test. Um, that does seem to be what they're doing. I, I recommend that people are 
evidence in this, take a look at that, this sort of case. Now, I've always felt, um, well, I, I was very unhappy with, with, with that case and, and, and with how it read Jacobson as being highly deferential to government action. I mean, first of all, if you read Jacobson carefully, there's a lot of implicit epidemiology, a lot of its upholding of vaccination depended on its actual judgment of, about the scientific um, uh, validity of, of vaccination. But I've also always seen J- Jacobson's basic standard, which is the necessity of the measure, as operating very much like today, say, the significant risk test would operate in disability law, which means that it, it requires serious scientific evidence, make a real case that such a measure is necessary. Now, we know that judges are now and have always been and always bil- will be very careful about overturning um, government action in the middle of an emergency. But as Wiley and Vladek say, courts are capable of applying um, real scrutiny to potentially stupid measures undertaken in an emergency and to distinguish between where government needs to, to make a judgment and where it's gone too far. And it's not clear that that's what courts are going to be doing. Um, I don't know. What, what are you seeing when you look at uh, the, the court situation now? We got like yeah. one minute to go here. I do think that's where, you know, on the one hand, I agree with you from the, from the, I'm a rule of law guy as well. And from the interpretation, I agree with you. I agree with where Lindsay, you know, came down on this issue as well. I do think we may see some boundary testing. It could be an interesting way to see, uh, you know, emergency powers on the federal level, the quarantine authority, you know, trying to nationalize a standard for these immunity cards, you know, that might be coming out, you know, could all be testing these boundaries. So yeah, so I, I'd say from a legal perspective, I'm I'm right with you. From a policy perspective, I want to throw out one more article that uh, I recommend to people, and that's the one by Rebecca Hafiji and Michelle Mello. It was in New, in- uh, New England Journal last week, uh, the Think Globally, Act Locally piece, which talks a lot about policy levers that are out there for creating a more unified, science-grounded approach to reopening things. So as we look forward to um, the next week or two and what the cases and issues might be, it seems pretty clear that we're headed for some kind of conflict, if only a political one, about who has the impetus. It's pretty clear that states continue to have their broad authority. They are exercising that broad authority. The feds have been in the backseat. They've been mostly watching and, and, and trying to fund, but maybe they're going to try and assert more control. Meanwhile, as this drags on and people start to court um, over various issues, we are seeing maybe the emergence of a very deferential standard, but still early days. So we'd recommend, I think, that anybody who is interested in where the big stories and big issues are uh, coming will look very closely at these new interstate compacts and think about how states um, are going to be navigating the increasing, at least vocal intrusion of the federal government. Thanks to everybody for being involved, and thanks to you, Ross. And uh, remember, wash your hands, everybody. Stay safe.